The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. Nifty Business is a sponsor of the show. Nifty Business is uh, the car leasing online service where you can pick a car, lease it through the website. They lent us a fee at 500. The reason they lent us a fee at 500 was so that we could use it to take Mario Rosenstock back to the point where he says his career sort of began, that being Trinity College. Now, I have known and liked Mario for a long time. So it gave me an opportunity to ask about some of the things that I'd never had a chance to get the sort of the background insight on. One of them being his relationship with the late Tony Fenton, because Mario and Tony were hugely close, best of friends for a long time. And the one thing I wasn't sure of was how that friendship had originally developed. So as we drove around Dublin, that's where I started. There's one person that I've never, I know you're very close to and you and I have spoken about this privately, but the the one thing I've never known is how the friendship began. How did you end up friends with Tony Fenton? Well, Tony Fenton came to Today FM in 2004, and um, I think, and uh, Ian, before he came, Ian said, do you know Tony Fenton's coming? And I went, yeah, Tony Fenton. Like, Tony Fenton. And he went, Mario, mark my words, you're going to really like Tony. And I went, why? Because I think he's your flavour. And I went, why? And he went, just wait and you see. Tony would have must have been, I'd say, a couple of months in the building before... <laughs> He was kind of knocking on the door of the office going, Dude, really like that sketch this morning. I like its flavour. And, uh, and I'd go, Oh, thanks. So he'd give you a few kind of sort of gentle compliments, which kind of showed you he was thinking about you, he liked you. And that was really nice. And I thought he'd, leave, he'd always leave with a good taste. You'd always leave with a good taste after being with Tony. You'd go, he'd always say something nice or do something nice. But the cementing of our relationship came completely over one thing. Uh, and it was one thing in one night and it was I had this I did this sketch about Roy Keane and it was um, the Roy Keane leaving Manchester United and the day that Roy Keane left Manchester United the next day I put out the record on the gift group called Leave Right Now and basically what happened in Today FM we hadn't seen it before but Today FM's computers all broke the internet broke and Doyle Central no more right? and Doyle no more and Doyle and I went to Pat what do you mean it broke Pat that's a cliche and he went no seriously Mario all the servers crashed because he said hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people went on to try and get this thing and it was the first example we had of something of that we had of this kind of thing happening you know and uh, so anyway the record company rang me and went is there any way we can get this out as a record so we got it out as a record at, we had to ring the publishers of Leave Right Now Will, Will and, and Will the guy who sang it uh, to get their permission to use it they said, uh, we'll use it as a charity. They said, what charity? And they said, Roy Keane's Guide Dogs for the Blind. James. And they went, yes, and no problem. So we put the record out and we made it a limited edition, 17,000 copies. And on day one, all 17,000 copies were sold personally over the hand, over the counter in Dublin and around Ireland. And it went to number one midweeks in, in Wednesday. You get the phone call going, it's midweek number one. That doesn't mean it's number one. It means it's just midweek number one. And then you wait till Friday, and it was away in a hack, Friday number one. And it was number one. And it was number one for a few weeks. And it was ended up being the Christmas number one. And I was the last Irish Christmas number one. No. Yeah. What happened then was, it was, it was funny because um, the, the record was at number one. And Tony Fenton, just before the record went to number one, Tony Fenton calls anyone. and that, that that record, how's it, how's it going? And um, we went, it looks good midweek. It looks good midweek, Tony. And he went, great. Because I just got um, eight to one for Mario Rosenstock to be the Christmas number one, and I had two grand on the nose. What? 
and I'm just making sure my record's doing okay. Your record? <laughs> right, Friday comes, I'm number one. He then collects 16,000 in cash <laughs> in an envelope. And then I have to, a week later, it's still number one, and I'm on the Tuberty Tonight Show, and I'm singing it, number one. We get a call after the show, and it's Tony, and he's out in, he's in Cape Town, and he goes, dude, how's my number one going? <laughs> I'm fine. He, he took the money and went off to uh, Cape Town on holiday. And he's doing these cheeky phone calls back, right? So I thought it was just the most gas thing ever. And of course, none of us had thought of putting up any money or anything, Ian or myself or anything. And he came back anyway, the beginning of January. And he said, dude, I just want to thank you for that number one. <laughs> and I want to take you out to dinner. I went, great. And this would, this would be splendid. Me and Tony on the rattle. And he went, I want to take your wife as well. And so he takes me and Blonnet to dinner. So it's just the three of us. And I thought, I was a bit unsure about this, you know, that kind of vibe. My wife and me and him. This is a little eyedwise shut. <laughs> and anyway, we go to... It's a to, very small bowl to put all the keys in. Though, yeah, we go to... Pe- there's not many options. We go to Peplos. We go to Peplos and we drink, and I'll never forget the wine. We drink this wine called Merceau. And it's a white, a beautiful, white, full-bodied wine. And I've been drinking it ever since. And it was expensive. Tony bought it. And he bought the whole dinner. And we were all going to put our hands in our pockets. But Tony bought the whole dinner, as maybe you might expect. And I just remember we had the most beautiful time together, the three of us, for about three hours. And I remember Blonnet, going home with Blonnet, and her just going, that guy is just absolutely adorable. And he loves you. And she got a real strong feeling that if ever I was out with him that he'd always take care of me he got a, she got a great vibe off him or a flavour as he would say and so that means then that any time I ever went out with Tony I would go I'm going out with Tony tonight she'd go oh that's okay <laughs> that was always a free pass wow. <laughs> because if you say I'm going out with him or him or him it's like oh Jesus no, God not them call me every 20 minutes you know yeah call me every 20 minutes and it was Tony oh okay Tony always got the soft treatment and from then we were we were Buzzing buddies and we did all sorts of things together we took photographs everywhere we went we played a lot of golf we did a lot of boozing we did a lot of great eating together did you golf yeah i do and oh, i do i knew you were mad at a tennis you mm. didn't strike me as the golfing yeah guy. i love it love do golf you? love go- love watching golf love playing golf the politics of golf now are fascinating so tony always held a special place in my heart and um we got closer and closer and closer and then he started coming to all my shows he'd go to shows in wexford He'd then go across to Galway and he'd seen the shows. He'd be in Dublin. He went to Cork to see the show. Tony saw the shows that I was doing more than anybody else, except for Ian. And it was the most biggest sort of bromance I've ever had. And yet I wouldn't call him my closest friend by any means. But it was like one of those the, the, one of those friendships you'd see in Anchorman, where they put music behind it. After, afternoon delight and we're like oh dude I love you one of those except it was genuine it's a friendship I'll never forget and I've, I've lots of lovely photographs and he was a genuinely affectionate person Anton he was also genuine that was the bit that amazed me because without having known Tony when you hear him on the radio you assume that if ever that is a persona and the person is radically different off air it'd be Tony and there's very few people who were so alike what they were on there. He wasn't significantly different. He was far superior off air, if you know what I mean, in terms of he never was able to show his capacity for empathy. He was very, mm. very emotionally intelligent, very empathetic. 
I have to ask you why we're heading in this direction because ironically, last two or three days ago, I was watching on YouTube an interview from 1993 with Joe Duffy and Gay Byrne on The Late Late Show. And Joe had just joined RTE and he was talking about the opening of the Nassau Street Gate and his resentment at the fact that it was described as throwing Trinity open to the people of Dublin by virtue of the fact that they could now come in through Nassau Street. Mm. That was the whole socioeconomic thing, iron ah. flat. You, it, it, it threw open its arms to you. You are a Trinity graduate, hence you are taking us to Trinity. In 1993, I would have been still there. Doing what? Uh, business, economic, social studies, but really I was doing politics and economics. Good Lord, I was, I was all braced for drama or English oh, philosophy. See, this is the, the two things, right? So I wanted to go to Trinity because Trinity had the best amateur dramatic society in the country. And I knew this before I went to Trinity. So people like Rough Magic and lots of people who ended up in the gate and all these people had all gone through Trinity. They'd all done what's called players in Trinity. And so from the age of 15, 16, I said, I've got to get into Trinity because I want to be in that players. But if you did drama in Trinity, you couldn't do players. It's that peculiar... You have to keep your amateur status. Kind of thing. It's that kind of internecine little academic battle of drama people can't do players. Do you know that kind of thing? So you have to do a normal degree. So I did politics and economics, but really was actually quite good. So you like had history of political thought, you had Irish politics, you had sociology, um, you had uh, r- Russian politics, and I was studying Russian politics in 1991. And had you a pre-existing interest in that area? Yeah. Had you, you were loved politics. politically intrigued. I loved politics, I loved the characters of politics. So I would have been like very interested in watching, you know, Gareth Fitzgerald and Hawhey debating on television in the 80s. Uh, I would have been interested in that goo-boo thing even when I was 11. Really? When you were in school? Yeah, I would have been fascinated by it. Um, and I just saw these characters, um, Fitzgerald, um, Michael O'Leary, the Labour leader, um, Charles Hawhey, as, as, as kind of larger than life cartoon people who I were drawn to. And, you know, Thatcher similarly, I saw her as well. And I was kind of going, these people are, are well, they're very important people in our lives. Who, what are they doing? Who are they? What do they look like? And I tune into them. Very much like Brian Farrell, for example, would I'd be glued to Brian Farrell. I tune into them and I go like, um, "What are they doing?" And I I kind of get into it. So I became reasonably politically literate from you know twelve, thirteen, whatever. And your interest in drama was with the desire to be an actor. Interest in drama was one hundred percent a desire to be an actor. I had no aspirations to be a comedian. I didn't understand it. But it wasn't just that you wanted to do amateur dramatics while you were in college. That the aim was oh no one hundred percent an actor, not just an actor, a professional actor. And I became a professional actor in college because after one of the shows I did, there was a letter on the notice board going, we think you're great. Would you like to become a professional actor? We're an agent. And I went, what? This is like something you'd see in the movies again. So I went, had an audition with them, a chat with them. And then before I knew it, I was auditioning for all these things, one of which was like Glen Rowe, which was like, Glen Rowe was basically like massive at the time. A million and a half people would watch it. The ratings were, were uh, were current toy show ratings. Wow. Yeah, they'd, what, they'd normally get about a million. And the population was smaller. You're talking half the population oh, yeah. at that point. So you're talking about 60, 65% share. Yeah, for big storylines, you get about a million and a half. And I remember even having done one episode or two episodes of Glen Row, you'd walk down the street and people would be pointing at you. And you realise then the magnitude. And I remember having, you know, going to McDonald's in Grafton Street. And a person coming up to me going, what are you doing in McDonald's? She could afford to buy McDonald's. Did you want to be an actor because something drew you to theatre and TV? Completely. Not fame? Not celebrity? Uh, I wouldn't discount that entirely. 
wouldn't discount that entirely I think you're a liar if you think that you discount that entirely it's a there's something that's drawing you to be the centre of attention to being in the as um, as Theodore Roosevelt said the man in the arena to be the centre stage and I wanted to be in that drama and so I saw my brother in a play my brother Rene in a play in a in boarding school and I just was totally mesmerised by when the light caught him and when people would be watching him speak and this attention this 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 sense of um, you could hear a pin drop in the room and everybody concentrating on what you were going to say as a character and I just went oh I've got to try this I've got to do it and I started doing it and I started doing it and I started doing it and then I became I got basically the bug for it I got addicted to it and what I got addicted now this is very quite complicated I think but what I got addicted to was being outside your own body leaving your own person and inhabiting somebody else's life in other words parking yourself and your narcissism and your obsession with yourself and your predilection with always your, my problems me my problems me and going no 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 I'm just going to be this guy Willie Loman now I, I adored it I adored not being myself but why did you stop it because I remember when I when I first met you mm. you very actively and deliberately didn't tend to appear anywhere as Mario you would do things in character yeah the wizard was always behind the curtain yeah you took him out from behind the curtain because I, I, because I realised that um, one that people are interested in seeing the person that does it and two I realised that um, I had quite a lot to say about everything and I could actually inform more about my work by talking about it rather than just being exclusively a mimic and another reason was I wanted to do stuff as myself so I wanted to present a radio show and I wanted to do a podcast as myself so I might as well come out about myself and I realised I was good at telling a story as well Is that difficult? Is that a bit like a current affairs person stating a political preference? If you get known do, pe- do people look at your comedy through a different lens if they have a sense of you if they know what the person is like? Maybe they do but I would, I would think that it's I would think that it helps it because they see that there's an intelligence there behind it and they can see that you're the probably the person that's writing the lines because they can hear almost the, the tick tick ticking Otherwise, you would just be Bob Hope, who goes, went down to the shop the other day and my wife was there. And you go, I know he didn't write that joke. He's just a good performer. So I'd like to know the person behind that. Who is Bob Hope? Or whatever. Um, Is it a different skill? What? Presenting your own program, being your own podcast host, interviewer. Then doing sketches, yes. Then doing sketches, then acting. I mean, you would... There are very few people who would... I'm always intrigued by... Do you remember the guys who used to be on um, the... Uh, independent adjudicators from SKC on the lotto. Yeah. They had more Alex. unspoken airtime than anybody else in history because mm. they were always on but they never spoke. Mm. In the same time, there were very few people who would have had as much broadcast air miles as you without ever revealing themselves personally. Yeah. So how big a shift was it or is it the same set? It was a very big shift, but I'd always been doing it off air. So in other words, I'd always been doing it in meetings. I'd always been doing it in private. I'd always been doing it at home. I would always be doing it in the pub. I would always be doing it in the restaurant. I was always holding court. I was always debating. I was always arguing. But in part, that's very different. I mean, in part, you're now shifting to a position where if you look at the podcast, your mm-hmm. job is to get the best out of somebody oh, else. That was a big, that was a big one. So one of the chief, um, one of the chief responsibilities of an actor is to listen. It's probably the number one thing. You must listen. If you're not listening, you're not acting. And so listening is at the core of what acting is about. And so what I did was I just said, I am going to be, get better and better and better at listening. That's all I'm going to do. And that's all I, I still do. And I actually feel myself getting better all the time at listening. I, I think maybe I'm a, everybody does this, I assume. You sort of lock people's kids 
in the head of the la- the age of the last time you talked about them. So I have your eldest around six, maybe sort of seven mm-hmm. in my head. He's now sixteen. Mm, does yeah. What? What of any impact did that did being a father and being a father of a young adult have in any of the kind of self reflection that you're describing, if any? Yeah, I mean, first of all, stop being don't be reckless. Become much more um, because you because you realise your your own physical um, health is now paramount, not just for yourself but for somebody else. So don't be so reckless. Do you and try to be an example? Do you change yourself because you know you're being watched? Does that matter? And being watched by them. Yeah. Yeah. No, not watched actively, but that, that, but, that. Oh yeah, be a good example. Yeah. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. I had a tremendously unstable upbringing myself. So the one thing I didn't want well, that would that would haunt me to the day I die is if I left any kind of um, trauma on my two kids. Did you become in any way more forgiving of your own upbringing? Did you get it to, the lens as you see yourself as father when you're yeah. looking at your own kids? Do you suddenly think? Oh God, maybe maybe now I see that Dad was just under pressure that day. Yeah. Did you soften at all, or did you harden? I had never, I had never, um, I had never really been hard about it. I just so, for example, some people aren't meant to marry. Some people aren't meant to get together. It's a bad idea. And when they meet and get married, it's going to be bad. And they meet and they marry, and it's bad. And then they have children. And that's not going to go well. And it didn't go well. All the time. But I don't blame either of them in any way. Do you know what I mean? So people make silly mistakes all the time. People fall in love with the wrong people all the time. Um, That just wasn't meant to be. Well, that suggests that a kid is a spectator to a bad marriage. You are also treated a certain way by your parents. And you either... You either... Commend that, mm-hmm. or you criticise that. Like you, you can't, you can't have experienced yeah. a negative experience yeah. in how you were parented okay. and not have so, some so, resentment. So, 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 for example, my mum did her best, right, and has lots of love. My dad seems to have been this kind of, seems to have been this kind of, as I've gone on for a lot of time, is about this endless, this this kind of black hole. In other words, I'm not fighting. We're not fighting. There is no crux to the argument. There is no red line. It's just there is no love, and Shinna will. That's it. I don't. It's very hard to understand that. You don't understand that when you're a child. You don't understand it when you're. You really don't understand it when you're 14 or 15. You struggle with it in your 20s as well, and in your 30s, often typically you're often very busy and you forget about it for a while. There comes a time in your life when you come up for air. You go, what the hell was happening there anyway? And then you realise it wasn't necessarily anybody's fault. And I said to my, you, you asked me about my children. The one thing I didn't want to do was that to happen to me. So, for example, I wanted to make sure that I was a- available, there, always there, as much as possible, tactile, affectionate, listening, um, firm, because to be firm is to be a good parent, not a walkover, try not to spoil them. And be a friend rather than be a patriarch. Mario Rosenstock in conversation there as we drove around Dublin. The Anton Savage Show Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.